From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, May 21st. There are many different reasons why people come to join the Secret Service. For Bill Gage, that story goes all the way back to 1981. President Reagan was almost assassinated outside a hotel in D.C. More picture. Here's a president. And Bill was shots. watching on TV. The shots came from the right in the corner of your screen. And I was really young, like six or seven, and I remember asking my dad and my sister as we watched when they were first getting the, the footage in of the actual uh, John Hinckley firing the rounds and the agents jumping in front of the bullets and the limo speeding away. I just remember asking my dad, who are those guys in suits? And my dad telling me it was Secret Service. You ask where have all the heroes gone? Here's one, Jerry Parr, Secret Service man, hits the president from behind, gets him down and into the limousine as gunfire continues. Bill grew up, and he went on to spend 11 years in the Secret Service. He protected President Obama, Sasha and Malia Obama, former Vice President Biden. And he never forgot that image of what it means to be the person in the suit ready to take a bullet for democracy. There's a common saying in the Secret Service that everybody joins to, quote unquote, stand next to the man. It's just an incredible feeling to provide protection to the president of the United States. I think I had the same impression most people in the public do just from watching them in the corner of the television shot of the president. That is Carol Lennig. She's a national investigative reporter at The Post. They are buttoned down, super serious, never crack a smile or a joke. They've got those impenetrable faces and and impenetrable, shiny glasses. And they just look like everything about them is spit and polish and perfect. Perfect is, in fact, part of the job description. There is this unofficial motto of the Secret Service, zero fail. It captures the idea that there can be no failure. It is not acceptable, it's not tolerated, because the mission cannot allow one bullet, one hand with a detonating device, one bomb. This week, the Secret Service has a zero-fail mission. What that means in layman's terms, ladies and gentlemen, is this. You don't get a bad day in the Secret Service. This footage from Secret Service boot camp gives you an idea of how seriously they take this mission. It's lawyers, plumbers, firemen, doctors. If one of those folks has a rough night the night before, stays out late, they have to deal with their boss, some kind of disciplinary action. If you have a bad day and you don't do your job, you're going to change the world. From the outside, it seems like the Secret Service has upheld that mission. Since John F. Kennedy, no president has been assassinated. The problem for a lot of the people that work inside the agency is that they view that track record as one of success by luck. Success because the enemy's messed up or we caught a break. 
Over the past 10 years, Carol has been reporting on these close calls. She's now the author of a book about the agency called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. And in the course of her reporting, it's become clear that the Secret Service is definitely not perfect. These have been hard times for the once proud Secret Service. Just days after a man jumped a fence and reached the White House, new details emerged today about a 2011 incident. Key members of Congress say alleged behavior like this could compromise the president's safety. In fact, they have failed many times in moments that we'll talk about in today's episode and in ways that still plague this agency today. They have witnessed sort of countless security vulnerabilities and gaffes, which make them fear that the zero-fail mission is perpetually at risk and that that is a danger for us and obviously for the lives of the president and his family. The Secret Service has many different roles and responsibilities. They have a staff of about 7,000 people, a budget of $2.2 billion. They actually also investigate financial crimes. But of course, the most high-profile role of the Secret Service is protecting the president. And a big part of that job is protecting the building that he lives in. We all think of the White House as impenetrable. But one incident on November 11th, 2011, showed that that's really not the case. Obama's president, he and his wife are actually in California on their way to Hawaii, and their children, the president's mother-in-law, are at home. Sasha's at home, and Malia's on her way home. A person who is mentally unstable and has started to believe he is a messiah who's responsible for killing President Obama because President Obama is Satan in his mind, has an assault rifle which he shoots from Constitution Avenue at the White House. It's a Friday night, and the Secret Service agents are positioned around the White House. Two agents sitting in an SUV near Constitution Avenue notice that something is off. They see a trail in the, in the leaves of how the gunfire's sort of power has created this trail with its wind. There are also counter snipers on the roof of the White House. They hear this gunfire and believe something's going wrong. And they're not the only ones who realize that the White House is under threat. There is another officer. Who is standing post outside the White House on the south side. And she feels what is basically building material, sandstone, dropping from the balcony above her. And she hears the shot at the same time. But then, a tragic failure. A captain radios everyone to say, not shots fired, it's a vehicle backfiring. But what was the reaction of some of these agents who are standing outside, they've heard shots, are clearly concluding that that is gunfire, and then hearing on the radio, oh no, don't worry about it, it's just a car backfiring. So they radio back to everyone on the complex, all the officers who protect the grounds, uh, no, 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 seriously, shots fired. But then there's this confusing moment, because from the perspective of these officers, the higher-ups aren't treating this like a threat against the White House. There's a strange rush to judgment that I, I, I 
can only attribute to people hoping this problem doesn't land on their lap. And the watch commander on duty and other supervisors there make the conclusion that these were some gangsters having a gun battle or a a beef, and the shots were simply the result of that disagreement. I mean, to my knowledge, there's not that much like gang violence around the White House, right? Like on the National Mall where all the tourists are like that is that seems like a pretty remote possibility to be automatically concluding in this moment. Somebody shoots at the White House and you're like, oh, this is just stray bullets from gang violence. You're absolutely right. It is not a typical event, nor have I read one time of that happening, gang shooting on National Mall next to Monument. And so it is a strange conclusion, but it's the one they reach. And when they do that, there is a legal significance. So the White House is basically saying, not on our territory. This wasn't something that was aimed at the president or at the White House. It's a hasty conclusion. And it leads to basically everybody in the public being told this was just a random shooting. And that was a story that was told for a whole four days. By that point, the shooter had fled the scene. The officer who noticed the falling debris later said that she didn't challenge this narrative of a random shooting because she was afraid of being criticized. But then a White House usher was alerted by a White House cleaner that there was broken glass on a balcony and what looked like a bullet hole in the window. So it basically took cleaning staff to figure out that somebody wanted to kill the president. And then that usher alerts Michelle Obama. It's not like he rushes to her room and says, hey, want you to know a bullet went through in the yellow room window. Rather, he's talking with her as if she knows because he thinks, of course she knows. Hmm. She is livid. No one has told her the house was shot while her child was home, while her mother was in the room. No one has mentioned this to her, but she just flew back from Hawaii with the Secret Service director who knows all about it. The shooter turned out to be a man named Oscar Ortega Hernandez. He was finally caught and arrested five days after the shooting. But Carol says the central failure here was the fact that it was so easy for him to do this in the first place. The Secret Service, which is responsible for making sure no weapon of any kind or threat of any kind gets close to the president, didn't really imagine that anyone could shoot from Constitution Avenue more than 700 yards away and reach the windows of the president's home. But that's exactly what happened. The other massive failure was just a real desire for this problem to go away and not be an attack on the president. So nobody really looked very deeply. And when they did begin to look, they tried to keep that basically even from their own agents and their officers who protect the complex. And this is how the zero-fail idea can get the Secret Service into trouble. There was another moment like this in 2014 when a man jumped over the White House fence. Made a beeline around the sort of circular drive of the White House, heading to the east, then onto the portico. And ran past multiple Secret Service staff and got inside the White House. People were jumping over the fence pretty regularly, sometimes because there's something wrong with them sometimes because they were trying to protest, but it was happening a lot. 
There was a whole infrastructure to prevent these kinds of incidents. There were high-tech sensors and alarms, but those sensors and alarms often malfunctioned, and they were even turned off sometimes to prevent false alarms and headaches for the Secret Service. So in this case and in others, that made the White House more vulnerable. Ring after ring after ring of security that is supposed to be uh, duplicative and create extra bands of protection. Every single one of those rings failed this night. Now, that's just terrible luck. It's also a reflection of something larger. Many agents told me that directors struggled to be able to explain to Congress that they needed more money, that they were afraid of proposing really large budget requests because they felt it would telegraph that the president currently wasn't safe without it. And that was really like an interesting catch-22. To hear that a director doesn't, doesn't want to ask for what he needs because it suggests he doesn't have what he needs. At that point in the Secret Service, they were constantly worried about outspending their budget and scrimping on things like technology and training and manpower. Budget increases did not keep up with inflation. In 2011, there was an agency-wide hiring freeze. After that, they were down more than 600 people. There was serious discussion about the Secret Service going bankrupt. But leadership didn't want to admit that they lacked what was necessary to succeed. I do think that there is something about that feature of the agency. Their dedication as individuals and as a group to never failing, to never letting a Kennedy assassination happen again, makes them often, as a group, unable to admit that anything's going wrong. The thing about the Secret Service is you have one job, protecting the president. And if you do that job, that's pretty much how people judge you. It was hard to be critical because the Secret Service overarchingly had significant success. Like, the president was alive, the first lady was alive, no one was injured. So when you measure success at, at that level, okay. That is John Wackrow. He's a former agent. He spent 14 years at the Secret Service, first as a criminal investigator, then moving his way up from protecting the national security advisor to protecting Michelle Obama to protecting President Obama. And it's a career that he takes a lot of pride in. But there were problems, too. As an organization, you just started seeing morale break down. You started seeing longtime career agents leave early, taking jobs elsewhere, you started seeing pay get limited in terms of overtime and the way that the, the budget process was operating. And John, like many agents, felt profoundly overworked. The Secret Service was perpetually short-staffed and constantly working overtime to make things work because the president's schedule is relentless. Let's be clear. If your job is protecting the president, Day in and day out, you sweat literally through your clothes, constantly making sure that everything is safe. These weren't the sexy times of the Secret Service, right? These were individuals that were standing in stairwells, in hallways for 12 to 16 hours. 
or walking for miles and miles next to the president's limo, or standing outside a kid's classroom day after day. I mean, one of the most mind-numbing assignments that you could possibly have. And all of this was even harder in a campaign year, when the president wants to travel more, make more stops, shake more hands, and get as close as he can to crowds of voters. You are on tenor hooks, walking the site, making sure every step was perfect. Guzzling down cup after cup of coffee to stay sharp. Making sure that you're eyeballing every single person that's coming up to the president in a rope line. There was this gap between the glamorous image of the job and the very grueling reality. And the attitude from senior leadership sometimes felt like, suck it up. We had to go through this. You have to go through it, too. You had disappointments, right? You didn't get a promotion or you didn't get to do this assignment and you wish you had more money. You you had your days off canceled. It was tough on their relationships with their families. It was tough on their mental health. But for some of the agents, all of this travel and time away from home did have one perk. Wheels up, rings off uh, was something we learned about after Cartagena. Wait, is that a real thing? Wheels up, rings off? We were told multiple times it was a, a catchphrase. Like, oh, we're done. The president is on Air Force One. You know, let's relax. So April 2012, Obama is preparing for the Summit of the Americas in Cartagena, Colombia. The way these trips work is there's an advanced team of Secret Service agents who arrive 48 hours before the president. They come on Air Force cargo planes that are carrying the president's limos and the armored vehicles. But their job doesn't really start until the president gets there. So in the meantime, there is an opportunity for sightseeing. On April 9th, a Secret Service senior supervisor sent out an email to the 54 agents coming on the trip. The email says, quote, See logistics below. Our motto for this trip is una más cerveza, por favor. My friend was there and this other man approached us and asked us what we wanted to drink. And she asked for vodka. We drank the first bottle of vodka the second bottle of vodka, and one of the men said that he thought I was very attractive, very beautiful, that if I wanted to go out with him. And I said, yes, sweetie, I'll go out with you, but I want a little gift. This woman is named Dania Londoño Suarez. She's talking to W Radio in Colombia. It's translated by Univision. On April 11th, she and a couple other women had noticed a group of about 10 drunk American men ordering round after round of drinks at the bar. One in particular was very interested in her. We danced, drank, and when he wanted to go, I said to him, Honey, you have to give me $800. That's the little gift I need in order to go And he said, okay, baby, let's go to the hotel. And I asked, in which hotel are you staying at? And he said, in the Caribe Hotel. All this time, neither my friends or me knew that they were Obama's Secret Service agent. And they weren't just Secret Service agents. Some of them were part of CAT, the counter-assault team, sort of like a special forces unit that goes with the president everywhere. The cat guys have a reputation for being these buff guys, always working out. And they're also known for a kind of frat house culture, hard partiers. Carol called them skirt chasers. 
one of the agents fancied himself a real ladies' man and, and treated presidential trips as a chance for a lot of healthy one-night stands. And though he had a wife and kids at home, he had never gotten in trouble. Not when he was protecting President Bush, down in Crawford, meeting women in Texas bars. Not when he was on the road in multiple countries. Never gotten caught. On this night, he and his fellow agents were ready to party. He got a text from his coworkers about a pregame with Goose and Mixers. He later meets Dania Suarez. And by the time they go back to his hotel, he has had about 13 vodka drinks. All of these events could have never been noticed by you, by me, by the international media that ultimately covered it. But something bizarre happened in this one. In this instance, he was surprised that the woman he brought home from Cartagena turned out to be a prostitute who wanted a lot of money the next morning. She says the price she originally asked for was $800. He handed her the equivalent of $28. And when she believed that she had already negotiated this price with him and he wouldn't pay it, he basically shoved her out the hotel door. She wouldn't give up. Dania Suarez basically insisted, I'm going to get my money. And in Cartagena, she did have rights. Sex work is legal there and regulated by the government. And if there's any interaction with a person who tries to hurt them or stiff them, they can raise a complaint. She does that. And indeed, she won't leave the hallway. She bangs on another agent's room. A friend of hers comes out, another one of the sex workers. Dania Suarez is insisting she's not leaving. And it leads to an altercation where the Colombian state police come to the hallway to try to resolve her problem. That's the biggie, because the agents who are trying to mediate this dispute with this woman are basically begging, no police, no police, no police. And they must know that as soon as the Colombian National Police Officer interacts with a U.S. person, he needs to report that to the U.S. Embassy. And when that happens, all hell breaks loose. Hillary Clinton's the Secretary of State. The ambassador, Michael McKinley, is alerted to what's happened. And he and his security officer notify the Secret Service leadership on the ground and say, just so you know, if this happened with the State Department, we would ship these people home. And Hillary Clinton is going to be so PO'd. Well, that sends shockwaves through the Secret Service leadership back in Washington. and. They have to ship everybody home. And now that the State Department knows, now that the Colombian National Police know, the word just starts to spread. Because this was not just one Secret Service agent and one escort. The case quickly developing tonight, about a dozen agents have been relieved of duty and brought back to the U.S. from Colombia, where they were on assignment. Sources tell ABC News that in addition to Secret Service agents, 10 or more military personnel from every branch are implicated. And there's new information that as many as 21 local women were allegedly involved. If it turns out that some of the allegations that have been made in the press uh, are confirmed, then... Of course I'll be angry. This scandal overshadowed President Obama's whole trip to Colombia. That means that we conduct ourselves with uh, 
uh, with the utmost uh, dignity and probity. And obviously what's been reported uh, doesn't match up with those standards. For the record, Carroll contacted the agent at the center of all of this multiple times to hear his side of how Cartagena went down. He declined to comment through a family friend. But it wasn't just Obama who was embarrassed by all of this. The rest of the Secret Service, other agents like Bill and John, they felt like this scandal undermined all the good work they do. I just remember everybody just being kind of horrified, horrified. And I remember my team leader saying, listen, our president, the president of the United States is going down to conduct foreign policy, and he should be down there in Colombia taking questions from the press about humanitarian aid. And instead, he's answering questions about a cat guy not paying a prostitute. We understood that there was a reputational hit. I mean, you couldn't turn on late night television without being the butt of some sort of joke. John even heard those jokes made directly to Michelle Obama. She, of course, defended the agents who take care of her husband and her kids, despite this image that people were starting to latch on to. It really fueled the narrative of an agency out of control and drinking nonstop and partying and, and all of this stuff. To this day, to this day, when I tell people I was in the Secret Service, their next question is, were you in Colombia? So here we are years after the scandal, and I'm not, I'm not even an active agent anymore, and I still have to field questions about that scandal. And I wasn't even there. I just want to be clear here, because I think some people could look at this episode and say, well, you know, they were in Cartagena, where prostitution is legal, and they weren't breaking the law, Right. What they want to do in their off time is their own business. And as long as they weren't on duty, like if they drink to excess and do some of this other stuff, like why is that such a big deal? I think they had never thought that was a very big deal before. Um, and a lot of people had done much worse and never really caught any hell for it. But what is a big deal is twofold. One, you don't embarrass the president. Uh, you don't embarrass the Secret Service brand. This got out, became public. So that's one thing. And the second is that though they are being shipped at taxpayer expense to protect the city and secure the area so that the president is safe, though that is their mission, they decide to use some of the free hours before that to drink pretty hard and hire prostitutes and bring them back to the hotels that taxpayers are paying for where their guns and security plans are stored. In fact, many of the investigative questions of the agents upon their return sort of surrounded that issue of well, how do you know these women weren't spies for a drug cartel? How do you know these women didn't take pictures while you were snoozing and trying to sleep off your hangover how do you know they weren't taking pictures of the security plans for the president that were in your duffel bag? How do you know they couldn't get your gun or some other piece of information that, that you had to have had in your room on your trip for a security purpose for the president? So yes, all of those things were a problem and became the subject of a sprawling two-year investigation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you uh, and Senator Collins for holding the hearing and, more importantly, for being on top of the situation from the start. Mr. Chairman and, and Director Sullivan and Inspector General Edwards, you know, thanks for testifying here. First of all, my great respect for the, the service um, 
and that this is an incredibly sad episode, and this hearing is all about how do you restore credibility. Based on the facts of this uh, case, it's just hard to believe that this is just a one-time occurrence. Thank you, Senator. Uh, again, you know, we did look at, you know, our, uh, you know, our discipline over the last uh, five and a half years. If this isn't part of the culture, and being part of this organization for, for 29 years and never seeing anything um, like this before in my life, I just, I just believe extremely, um, very strongly that this just is not part of our culture. The problem was, this was a part of the culture of the Secret Service. And things like this had happened before. To varying degrees, these kinds of things had happened in Thailand, in Italy, in Ireland, South Korea, El Salvador, Panama, in Russia. And these kinds of things continued to happen even after Cartagena. The details of some of these incidents are only coming to light now because of Carol's reporting. In 2014, there was an incident in Florida. Officers decided to get hammered in the Keys while they were waiting for President Obama and his family to come down for a little mini vacation. That meant round after round of tequila shots. One agent left the bar and promptly threw up his crab cake on the inside of a Secret Service van. And others drove to a grocery to buy Gatorade. And they ended up being hit on the side in a T-bone by a truck because they were under the influence. This sparked the Secret Service director at the time to launch an investigation. And when she dug into it, it was like almost everyone on the trip was drunk. Then there was the episode at the Hay Adams Hotel in D.C. An agent drinks too much just hours before he's supposed to show up to work, which is a violation of the rules. A very senior supervisor, not a junior guy, I mean a top supervisor in headquarters. He meets a woman at the bar, goes up to her room, and ends up causing this whole scene when he's kicked out of her room but leaves a bullet behind and tries to get it back. Kind of a bizarre episode. And then in 2015... Another major supervisor in charge of all security protections at the White House gets loaded at a retirement party in Chinatown. He leaves in a government-issued SUV. Comes back with his friend and colleague to the White House. They blow past a guardhouse where Secret Service officers are waving and yelling at them to stop. And they drive through a closed section of the White House that has been shut down because of a bomb threat. They knock into a White House security barrier. They almost drive over the suspicious package the officers think might be a bomb. But they are never given a blood alcohol test. The commander on duty allegedly said that testing them would be a career killer, though he later denied saying that. All of this unfolds after Cartagena. So to say that this is not part of the culture of the Secret Service is just not true. And by the way, I want to stress something, Martine, which is I have met agents that just blow my socks off about their perfectionism, their devotion to the mission, their dedication, how much it personally matters to them to be flawless in everything they do. And I think that's something important to say but there have been, in recent years, many, many failings in terms of judgment and personal conduct. And I think it is because the Secret Service got used to being able to keep its secrets. 
And it developed an arrogance. You know, when people started to realize that the way to get promoted was to be loyal to your set of bosses, to do whatever they said, even if it was kind of crossing a line, they started to view themselves almost as untouchable because those bosses were going to protect them like they were going to protect the bosses. There was some failure, some money lost in a safe. There was a huge security mishap. If everybody just kept quiet, everybody's reputations would be fine. And that arrogance started to build like a virus, you know? It just started to infect more and more cells of the agency. Obama was tired of all the Secret Service scandals making his administration look bad. One of my favorite scenes involving President Obama is when he is sitting down with Director Julia Pearson and very sternly, not yelling, but like an incredibly disappointed parent. He says, you know what? The problem with the Secret Service is you don't have enough women in the Secret Service. It was probably a little bit of a joke, but it was very true that the agency had a lot of problems with diversity, both in terms of gender and also in terms of race. Like many law enforcement agencies, the Secret Service could be an insular, intransigent place. Those problems have been apparent ever since 2000, when eight Black agents filed a class action lawsuit against the Secret Service. The racial discrimination lawsuit by the Black agents is such an important moment in the Secret Service's history. These eight agents allege that they were consistently passed over for promotions, while white guys with lower performance ratings rose through the ranks. The lawsuit also unearthed a bunch of emails with racist jokes passed around between white staff. It was an embarrassment for the service, and the Black officers were blamed for airing the dirty laundry. The entire agency, including the director, are livid. And it starts a, a mini civil war inside the agency in which some Black agents are blackballed. No one will speak to them. People are pressured to take their name off the lawsuit. People won't work beside them. All because they basically called out what was true. That lawsuit ended up getting resolved years ago. But it points to problems that still remain within the service and are just revealing themselves in new ways. In writing the history of this agency, I was fascinated by how important it was to some of the old timers, the alums, that the agency maintain uh, its objectivity, its, its apolitical reputation. It's a really difficult line to walk to be the people who protect a president and not appear to be aiding his, his political wishes. Unfortunately, President Trump's presidency laid bare how easy it was to press the Secret Service into political service. Outside the White House, protesters facing off against authorities, kneeling and raising their hands in peaceful demonstration. But then, almost suddenly, U.S. Park and Secret Service police began shoving and hitting, striking this Australian news crew as they were live on the air. You see the racial tension in the agency flare anew when the Secret Service is deployed to help clear Lafayette Square. 
for President Trump's photo op, you know, his vanquishing of uh, protesters of George Floyd's murder. And as police move in, they fire tear gas on the crowd. While inside the grounds of the White House, a remarkable split screen, the president claiming to be an ally of peaceful protesters. What's so fascinating to me about that moment is Black agents and officers band together and they do not mince words. In a town hall, a teleconference with the director, they're brave enough to ask, what's our standard in use of force with people who are peaceably demonstrated outside the White House? And some of them are brave enough to ask, which I found shocking, can we take a knee at the White House fence with some of the protesters because we agree with them? And uh, the director says... That will be hard to do, given their job, which is to be politically objective, to be nonpartisan, to not take a stand. A lot of bromides were offered. People said that they were going to care about racial discrimination inside the agency. But it is a chilling moment because black officers and agents essentially are seeing all around them every day that many of their colleagues, their white colleagues, very openly supported President Trump's rhetoric about Charlottesville, about police officers, about fighting with George Floyd protesters, about immigrants. Theoretically, this should be a huge no-no for the Secret Service. Back in 2016, one of the service's highest-ranking women wrote a private Facebook post about how she was dismayed by Donald Trump's candidacy. She was disciplined and she was almost demoted. But after Trump became president, it became totally normal for an agent to keep a MAGA hat on his desk or to share pro-Trump memes on social media. And there were other signs that objectivity was going out the window. The head of Trump's Secret Service detail took a job as a senior White House political advisor while he was still being paid by the Secret Service. That was a pretty huge red line to cross. When the pandemic started, Trump pressured the Secret Service to ignore CDC protocol, to keep traveling, to carry on with big crowded rallies. The Secret Service leadership basically bent to Donald Trump's will on all of those fronts. And once November 2020 came around, it was clear that members of the Secret Service were taking sides. What I learned to my surprise was how many Secret Service agents and officers were actively promoting the whole rigged election fraud, you know, the claims that were without any evidence that the election had been stolen. They posted on Facebook about stopping the steal and about voting machines that had discounted Trump's votes. One that I was so surprised by, a source sent me a screenshot of a Secret Service officer who had said um, the people who stormed the Capitol were patriots. And um, there were many of them cheering on that event. Because of the false allegations of election fraud, Joe Biden did not immediately receive the beefed-up Secret Service protection that usually is given to the president-elect. That includes a special armored car and the 24-7 counter-assault team and a larger detail of agents. And arguably, no one is a bigger target for an assassination than an incoming president in a highly contested election. Some current and former Secret Service officials told Carol that they thought this delay was disturbing, that it was proof that political bias was getting in the way of the agency fulfilling its most core mission. And within Biden's camp, there started to be this question. 
could these Secret Service agents actually be trusted to protect the president-elect? They even requested that the agency swap out all the members of the Trump presidential detail before Biden's inauguration. A Biden spokesman has since said that that was, quote, flatly untrue. But according to Carol's sources, that was part of the conversation. His transition team before coming into the White House were very concerned about the tone of the presidential detail, very pro-Trump, stubbornly so. The Secret Service has had a strong reaction to some of the anecdotes and takeaways from Carol's book. They say her reporting is focusing on past failures that they overcame and evolved from, and that these problems are simply not an accurate portrayal of the agency today. In a statement, the director of communications for the Secret Service said, quote, Now and throughout its 156-year history, the agency's skilled workforce is dedicated to the successful execution of its critical protective and investigative missions. And for the most part, Carol actually agrees with that. She thinks that they are dedicated to the mission of protecting the president. But she also thinks that there is a lot stacked against this agency that they need more money, more people, more resources, and that they also might need less secrecy. There are incredibly important reasons why some aspects of the Secret Service's work are secret. We don't want to weaken the president's safety net. Their secrecy also has helped them shroud problems that they have inside. Epic serial failures and keep the American public from understanding how challenging their work is and how much they need help. Carol Lenig is a national investigative reporter for The Post. Her book is called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. It is out this week and you can buy it online or at your local bookstore. You can also go to postreports.com to read an excerpt from the book or to watch Carol's interview with Washington Post Live, where she talks about so many more of the incredible anecdotes and surprises from this book. This story on Post Reports was produced by Ariel Plotnik and me. It was edited by Maggie Penman and mixed by Lena Muhammad. Thank you to Peter Walston, London King, Madison Detlinger, Stephen Boriak, and Ayelet Gruenspect. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Muhammad and Jordan Marie Smith. Ariel Plotnik and Renny Svernovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>